I wouldn't have a problem with traditions if they left scripture out of it. If you leave the scriptures out of it, don't try to use the scriptures to justify your tradition. Your tradition should be able to stand all by itself without you trying to inject scripture to stand it up. Because if you inject scripture to stand it up and I'm going to teach scripture, then chances are I'm going to pull that scripture out of that which you are injecting it to stand and it's going to fall and you're going to look at me as the perpetrator. I'm not the perpetrator. I'm a deliverer. And it's to deliver you from your traditions. And if you're going to keep traditions, then do your traditions. Just don't try to whitewash it with scripture. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the gospel according to John. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. While Yeshua was teaching in the temple court, the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. They said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They were tempting him that they might have reason to accuse him. But Yeshua said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Because they only bring the woman and not the man, it is clear that the scribes and Pharisees are not interested in justice or doing what the law stipulates. The law says that the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This portion of John illustrates that Yeshua is truly the light of the world, and those that follow him shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The message title in this podcast is, Go and Sin No More. So, let's study. All right, go and sin no more. We're in John chapter eight. I want to read and then we'll go from there. Yeshua went out, went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Yeshua stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Yeshua was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Yeshua had lifted up himself and saw none, but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Yeshua said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And then I threw in verse 12 because, well, you'll see here in a moment. Then spake Yeshua again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. 
He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have light of life. Now, here we are in John chapter number eight. And remember, as we're reading and going through John verse by verse, it's important to hold this information that was given to us in chapter one, verse one, all the way to the end of John. And why is that important? Because when John wrote his version, his testimony, and you could see this as him testifying because it is a testimony. John is writing his testimony of his experience with the Messiah. And so when he writes his testimony out, he didn't write it in chapter or verse. He wrote it out in the form that we could even say it was a letter. What I continue to try to do as we're going through these Bible studies, if you would, these verse by verse studies of the Bible, these times when we come together for instruction is for me, it's important for me to try to put myself in the place where the people are. And so I have to use my imagination. Now, I know that in the days of old, Jehovah made it clear that the imaginations of men are evil from their birth. We can have evil imaginations, even though we may not necessarily be evil people. Every last one of us in this world, I suspect that every last one of us in this room, and I confess that even to this day, I still have to deal with imaginations of evil stuff. There's things that go across my mind that I have to snatch them down. There are people who say things to me or folks that I'm in the midst of who, who look at me a certain way who, or who respond to me a certain way or who don't respond the right way. And my mind, if I'm not careful, my mind will go places that my mind shouldn't go. And there's, there was times of, old oh, my mind would go there and stay there until I'm mad. Do you know that your imagination can make you mad? You about ready to go off on somebody and they don't even know. You've heard people say, if one more person, just one more. (laughs) You see. And so we, being that we now have two minds, when James talks about being double-minded, What James is dealing with, I believe, is that we are two-minded people. I use it to say that there's two of us. There's that old man that still lurks, and there's this new man that I'm trying to become. And the thing is, is that I have to process information through both of those men, or let me put it this way, because I'm more familiar with the old man, at least I used to be, more familiar with the old man, my first processor that kicks in is that old man. See, the old man processes what you say, processes information. But then 
there's this new man. And the more I train up this new man, the new man begins to process information before the old man processes information. But for a period of time, I got two processes going on at the same time. Now, how I respond to this information is going to indicate to you which processor I'm operating in. Because <laughs> we're constantly processing information, and sometimes we're not even aware that we've got these two processors going on unless you are intentional in your walk. When you become intentional in your walk, you become more and more aware of the two minds, and to be double-minded is to go back and forth. To be single of mind, it is put either be hot or cold. You can't be lukewarm. A lukewarm person is that person who's going back and forth. On one, one moment, they're on this side of the fence. The next moment, they're on this side of the fence. And sometimes they're straddling the fence. So we have to remember that from the time John begins to write to the end of his letter, his testimony, as he's testifying, that we keep what John is saying in one document. We can't take a piece of his letter and another piece of his letter and apply it how we want. We have to apply it with the intent that it was given. That's understanding and properly dividing the word. From the time of tabernacles, and John introduces the Bible, he says in John chapter 7, that Yeshua walked in Galilee and would not walk in Jewry or in Judah for fear, well, not for fear, because he knew that the Jews wanted to kill him. Then his disciples, his, well, his brothers came to him and said, hey, you know, if you're this person you say you are, then make it known to the world. And he said to them, your time is any time. My time has not yet come. They went up. They went up to tabernacles and Yeshua came up later. He went up, but he didn't go up with them. Now, from the time of tabernacles in the seventh chapter, to the crucifixion of Yeshua, he never returned to Galilee. And I'm going to show you why I'm pointing this out. From the seventh month, which is when Tabernacles is, to the 11th month, Yeshua remained in Jerusalem, teaching in the temple courts by day, and going to the Mount of Olives to spend the night, returning to the temple in the morning. Luke records in chapter 21, verse 37, and in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. Why is it called the Mount of Olives? Because it's a mount that has a lot of olives. <laughs> if you ever go to the Mount of Olives, you will find there are olive trees that are hundreds, some say even thousand years old. It was there from the time of Yeshua. They were there before Yeshua, and they're still there today. 
And all the people came early in the morning to hear him in the temple for to hear him. Now, it's important for us also to understand who was allowed in the temple. The priest and the Levites were ordinary people allowed in the temple. No. Now, the thing is, is that when a person see he was in the temple, Yeshua was not in the temple. He was in the temple courts. Some translations point this out. Not all translations do. Around the 11th month. Now, remember, he goes up in the seventh month. Around the 11th month, and we'll get to this much later, Lazarus dies. And Yeshua went to Bethany. Now, Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. It's not a very long distance. It's a short distance. And so Yeshua leaves Jerusalem, goes to Bethany, resurrects Lazarus. In the 12th month, he goes to a city which is called Ephraim. And in John chapter 11, verse 54, says, Yeshua therefore walked no more openly among the, the Jews. In other words, he no longer walked in the land of Judah. But went thence into the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Now, those of you who've, who've seen the maps that we've put up, we don't have maps here. But during the time of Yeshua, Israel was divided into three regions. And these three regions was known as Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. Judea was the land of Jewry or the land of the Jewish people, the Jews. Samaria belonged to the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Galilee was where the other tribes were. So you had three tribes. Actually, if you look at the geography, there was Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon. Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon dwelled in what is known today as Judea. These were the three tribes. In Samaria, it was Ephraim and Manasseh. There were periods of time when Israel now became two kingdoms. And during those two kingdoms, it was supposedly Judah and Benjamin who remained Simeon, which now became assimilated into the northern kingdoms. And this is where individuals get the idea of 10 lost tribes, even though the Bible never uses that term. There's no such thing in the Bible as 10 lost tribes, but in the gospel record, there is the lost tribe. Now, I believe that that term was the religious people were lost because he said he has not been sent except to the lost Sheep of who? Israel. Israel was not divided. It was not Israel and Judah. It was one people all together. Because if we look in the story of Luke, there was a woman named Anna. How many of you remember? Prophetess named Anna. What tribe was she from? 
Hello? Say what? Don't guess. If you don't know, don't guess. I mean, you can guess, and then you may be wrong. Thank you. She was from what tribe? Where is that at? Where did you find that? Luke, Luke 2, 36, 38. Now, Asher was supposed to be part of the 10 lost tribes. You see. Now, if Asher was ten, part of the 10 lost tribes, then what is a daughter of Asher doing in Jerusalem at the temple? Anyway, that's a whole nother message that we've already taught. But the point is, in this verse, chapter 11, we just jumped three chapters from chapter 8, 9, 10, into 11, around the end. Yeshua goes to a city called Ephraim, and Ephraim is in the region of Samaria. That's in that region where the woman at the well was, who was a descendant of Jacob. Ephraim, according to the definition, is a city about a short day's journey from Jerusalem. Now, what I'm pointing out is that Yeshua goes up to Jerusalem in John chapter 7. That's the seventh month. Here we are in chapter 11, verse 54. He actually leaves Judea. Why? Mount of Olives is in Judea. He would go to the temple during the day, go up to the Mount of Olives, which is about two miles away at night, and each day he would return. So he would go and return. And he did this from the seventh month to the 11th month. Why? Because when we get into the 11th chapter, we're going to find that in the 11th month, he goes into Ephraim. And by the time we get into chapter 12, six days before Passover, he comes back to Jerusalem or he comes back to Bethany before going up to Jerusalem. You see this. So you might ask, well, why am I saying this? Yeshua returned to Bethany about six days before Passover, where Mary anointed him for his burial. Chapter 12, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Yeshua and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said Yeshua, chapter 12, verse 7, let her alone, because remember Judas said, why are you wasting this expensive, it could have been sold, and the money given to help the poor. And Yeshua says, leave her alone. Against the day of my burying, has she kept this? So by going back to Bethany from Ephraim, he goes up to Passover, and he enters in, and of course you know the rest of that story. I point all of this out to say that Yeshua did not make a special trip to Jerusalem for Hanukkah. That's the whole point. Because there are people who want to make the argument that he was in Jerusalem during Hanukkah as if he went up to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah. He never left. So what was he celebrating all that time? 
<laughs> you can't say that because he was in Jerusalem, he was there for that reason. Because that wouldn't be true. He had remained in Jerusalem since tabernacles in the seventh month until well after Hanukkah in the 10th month before going to the city of Ephraim for several days during the 12th month and returning for Passover in the first month of the new year. Now we're going to get to a, a little bit more on this as we get into chapter 10, as we discuss the festival of lights, which by the way, is not about rededicating a temple. The festival of lights has nothing to do with rededicating a temple, but rededicating an altar. People who read Maccabees will not be misled by the stories told in the Maccabees. And you say, well, why are you making a big issue out of it? Because we're in that season. We're in that season and it is important. Now, I'm not bashing. I'm simply stating fact so that people will have the fact and not operating in ignorance. I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren. You need to know what it is you're doing, and you need to be able to associate it with biblical reasoning. So it's not about rededicating a temple, but rededicating an altar that was made into a law as commanded by men, not Jehovah. Now, some of you all wondered why I had my little book bag. Actually, it's not a book bag. It's a bag with books. And mostly of what I do today is I use the Internet and study, but I also have a lot of material that I like hard copies. And what I have here is the Aramaic English New Testament, the Jerusalem Bible, a 1611 King James and a complete Jewish Bible. And I have these here because if you don't search a matter out, you're at the mercy of storytellers. How many of you felt Hanukkah had to do with rededicating the temple? Be honest, raise your hand. How many of you knew it was about rededicating the altar? Those of you who have been watching my posts, I know who you are. And so it's important. Here's what first Maccabees, which is found in the Jerusalem Bible and in the 1611 and first Maccabees. Well, I got it here in the common English Bible. In verse 59, then Judas with his brothers, not Judas Iscariot. This is a different Judas long before that Judas was born. Judas was a common name. This was Judas Maccabee. Then Judas with his brothers and all the assembly of Israel laid down a law. In some Bibles, they ordained that every year, at that season, the dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and happiness. Eight days, beginning with the 25th day of Kishlev, 
Now, it's important for people to know why, what is going on here. The altar, brothers and sisters, is one of the most crucial parts of the temple service because it was the place where the sacrifices were made. The sacrifices were made on the altar. So if a person sinned, if a person wanted to make some kind of an offering of an animal Thanksgiving offering, a burnt offering, a love offering, or whatever the case may be, and because the priests every single day in the morning, in the evening, on Sabbath, on special holy days, had to offer these offerings on the altar. The altar was more important, if you would, than the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense was important, but nothing was burnt here but incense. More important than the Ark of the Covenant, which was behind the curtain. Why? Because the priest only went in there once a year. But every day, at least twice, morning and evening, that altar was being used for sacrifices in accordance to the instructions. So when the Greeks came in and defiled the altar, they rebuilt the altar or they took the stones. They didn't know what to do because they defiled the altar by putting a pig, swine. It defiled the altar. And once they recovered it, rebuilt it, then now they rededicated the altar and the sacrifices could resume. The altar was the focal point of the daily services of the priests and the works of the Levites. As long as there is an altar in the temple, there's something to celebrate. Once the altar was gone, and the holiday was around the dedication of the altar, not the dedication of a temple. And by the time of Yeshua, it had evolved into a festival of lights. Today is not about an altar. It's not even about a temple. It's about celebrating a military victory. So most people today, don't even know what they're celebrating. You get it? They're holding on to a celebration, which meaning as established by those who instituted it is long lost. And the other question, can man establish a law that the people of the almighty had to adhere to? The Torah explicitly say, you shall not add to nor diminish from. And so I'm making this point because if a person chooses to celebrate Hanukkah, that's their prerogative. The only point I'm making is here is why it was instituted and why it's being celebrated today is not in accordance to what was instituted back then, it has become something else 
altogether. In the New Living Translation, the most ancient Greek manuscript do not include the verses that we're about to look at. And that's one of the reasons why I brought this Aramaic New Testament. Now, in most of your Bibles, you're going to see something like this. The most ancient Greek manuscript do not include John chapter 7, verse 53 to John chapter 8, verse 11. It's not there in the most ancient manuscript. So I have to take the translator's words on these. Why? I don't have access to the most ancient manuscript. But this person supposedly had access to the most ancient manuscript and chapter eight of John in the Aramaic English New Testament begins verse one with verse 12. So there is no one through 11 that is in your Bible in the Aramaic New Testament. There's verse 12 becomes verse one. It says, now Yeshua spoke with them again. That's in your version, verse 12. You see this? Now, if you've got a, a legitimate Bible, I say a legitimate Bible because a lot of Bibles are just printed to give somebody something. But if you've got a legitimate Bible, you will find in your footnotes something that tells you that chapter 7, verse 53 through John 8, verses 1 through 11 was not in the original manuscripts. How many of you've got that in your Bible? Let me see your hands. If you've got it, I mean, you've got a Bible. Okay, so you see that. Now, I point this out because I could not do this teaching legitimately without dealing with the potential attackers who's going to come at me and say, why are you teaching from something that ain't even in the Bible? And it's like, how you know? Because of this, it says that it's not there. Okay. Well, it is in most of our Bibles, right? And because it's there, and it's a story that supposedly actually happened, but according to theologians, they say it was added sometime later, and it was not part of John's original writing. So it's only fair to me and to you that I be upfront about it. I see it as valid personally because of the story itself. There are things here that I want to point out to you that hopefully will affect your judgment going forward. National Version footnote says this story may not have belonged originally to the Gospel of John. It is absent from almost all the important early manuscripts and those that have it sometimes place it elsewhere. And then he, he uses um, Luke chapter 21, whereas it's saying that it could have been placed there in Luke, but it's not in Luke, it's in John. And so because it's there in John, we're dealing with it because we're going through the gospel according to John. But they also say, but the story may be authentic. Now, verse two, John chapter eight. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. Now, remember, he had gone to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appears again 
in the temple course where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. I wanted you to see this from the NIV because the NIV puts what? Courts. The King James has the temple. Now I've tried to make it clear, but a person who don't regard the Old Testament, like most Christians, who look at the Old Testament as the Old Covenant, and therefore they're not as interested in it except for historical value. But if you did not know that only the priest and the Levites were even allowed in the temple, without the word court here, you wouldn't realize that Yeshua is not teaching in the temple. Yeshua is not a Levite. Yeshua never goes in the Holy of Holies in the earthen tabernacle, but he presents his own blood in the heavenly tabernacle at his ascension. And then, you know, during the time of his resurrection, ascension, return, where he gathered his disciples and for 40 days, according to the Acts chapter one, began to teach his disciples after he gathered them all over again, things pertaining to the temple. So after the resurrection, and him sanctifying or presenting his body and returning, he spent 40 days teaching them all over again the things that he had taught. And so John chapter 8, verse 2 in the NIV says he appeared again in the temple courts. And then in the Amplified, early in the morning at dawn, he came back into the temple court. And the people came to him in crowds. He sat down and was teaching them. In the complete Jewish Bible, I believe it has the temple court. So there's some versions that have the temple court. There's other versions that simply have the temple, which is why I say you cannot just trust one version of the Bible. You need to have multiple versions of the Bible so that you can compare verses, letters, writings, and so on. So. Yeshua went unto the Mount of Olives and early in the morning, he came again into the temple of King James and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst. So notice verse two, the people came. Yeshua is in the temple court. He came, he sat down and the people came unto him and he began to teach them. It would be like us gathered here. And then somebody busts through the door, bring a woman, put her in front of us and say, okay, you law keepers, y'all claim to keep the law. What do you do with this woman caught in adultery? This is the picture here. It is clear from their actions, they're not interested in doing what the law stipulates. They're not interested in justice because they only bring the woman. Now, here's what the law states. The law says, and the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22 and 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. 
so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. So father looked at adultery as evil. Why? Because if you don't deal with the issue that is considered evil, it spreads. Let me show you how it operates in your house. That's not fair. You let such and such do it. You gave it to such and such. In other words, individuals make the argument that if you allowed somebody else to do it, you shouldn't prohibit them from doing it. As adults, we do this. We do it on our jobs. If you feel that you're being targeted, if you feel that your boss is treating you differently than he's treating somebody else that works, now you're looking at favor. They're showing favoritism or they're discriminating, or they're not being fair, or they're targeting you. And so Father is saying, deal with this, and then that way you put away evil from the land. So we see they're not interested in justice. They're not even interested in doing what the law states, folks. The religious leaders who are supposed to be teaching the law is not doing what the law states. In fact, they're trying to use what Moses wrote to trap Yeshua, not even realizing it's exposing their own hypocrisy. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Was she doing adultery by herself? Now, Moses in the law. Now they want to invoke Moses. Can you see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders? Why? They weren't keeping the law. They were teaching traditions. They were teaching traditions. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what say you? Why are you bringing them to Yeshua? Why didn't you just take them out and stone them? Here's another thing to be mindful of. In the day of Yeshua, Israel was not a nation. It was a Roman province. It was controlled by the Romans. They were in captivity. But the Romans had a means, a way in which when they captured a state or a nation or people, they tried to make their captivity as pleasing as possible by allowing them to exercise their freedom and mainly their freedom of religion, while at the same time adding Caesar because Caesar's picture was on the money that was being used to pay taxes. Remember, Yeshua says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, why? Because Caesar's money was the currency of the day because of Roman occupation. Even when it came down to dealing with Yeshua, they couldn't crucify him without Roman permission. And this is why they're before Pontius Pilate. So they weren't free. But at the same time, Yeshua says, whoever the son sets free will be free indeed. And they say, what? we've never been in bondage. Well, wait a minute, you in bondage right now. You just got some religious freedom. 
And can I tell you, my American brothers and sisters, you're in bondage right now. You just got some religious freedom. And as long as you practice the acceptable religion, you'll be okay until you start rejecting the acceptable religion. When you start rejecting the Christmas and, and the Easter and even some of these other practices, because we are in a nation where all religions are accepted. Every religion has the freedom to practice its religion and the Constitution of the United States, which is not a holy document, permits religion of every kind. In fact, the Constitution of the United States permits the pursuit of happiness. And in the pursuit of happiness, everybody can marry whoever they want or whatever they want. And the politicians have effectively taken the believers in Messiah and split them down party lines. Democrats and Republicans, and pit them against each other. Throw some bones over here to the conservatives and you gather them, or throw some bones over here to the liberal, and of course, that's your base. When we decide that we're going to stand on what is written, what is written exalt itself over the Constitution the Constitution does not exalt itself over what is written. Patriotism and religion mix well. Patriotism and truth is like oil and water. It don't mix. Did our numbers just drop? I had some folks when I did some posts that says, brother, you know, you're traveling in some bad water now. You should err on the side of caution. Don't call out the Christians and their Christmas. Don't call out the Messianics and Hanukkah. Don't call out people and their traditions. Let me tell you something. When you walk in what is truth, you can't avoid. I wouldn't have a problem with traditions if they left scripture out of it. If you leave the scriptures out of it, don't try to use the scriptures to justify your tradition. Your tradition should be able to stand all by itself without you trying to inject scripture to stand it up. Because if you inject scripture to stand it up and I'm going to teach scripture, then chances are I'm going to pull that scripture out of that which you are injecting it to stand and it's going to fall and you're going to look at me as the perpetrator. I'm not the perpetrator. I'm a deliverer. And it's to deliver you from your traditions. And if you're going to keep traditions, then do your traditions. Just don't try to whitewash it with scripture. Hallelujah. Religious leaders were trying to corner Yeshua to make a case against him. Verse six, this they said, tempting him that he, that they might have to accuse him. But Yeshua stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. 
Sometimes you got to hear them not. Sometimes you got to ignore. Just because somebody puts something on your post don't mean you got to respond to it. I had a, a brother at the time I was Christian and he's Christian. And so at that time he was my brother. Right now we're acquaintances. I tell people today I'm not a Christian. Some people have an issue with that. I don't. I'm a follower of Messiah. Christian embraces all of the accoutrements and traps that is associated with the term. Jesus Christmas, I mean Christ. Jesus Christ embodies all of the stuff that is Christian. Yeshua Messiah. Notice the world ain't trying to steal Hanukkah. The world is not trying to steal tabernacles or Passover or any of that, but they are after Christmas. You know why? Because it belongs to them. They're after Easter. Easter, brothers and sisters, both the world and the church celebrates Easter. Both the world and the church. Pagans celebrate Christmas. That which comes from the Almighty, the world ain't trying to take it. They leave that alone and get as far away from it as they can, even those who claim to be of him. Imagine many Christians reject the Sabbath and hold to Sunday. They reject the feasts and institute their own holy days or holidays or whatever you want to call them. But there's nothing holy about Christmas. I said on one of the posts is like, just because Yeshua was in Jerusalem at the temple during Passover, doesn't mean that he was celebrating Hanukkah no more than him being placed in a manger validates Christmas. It doesn't. Now my messianic folks, they get a little upset. I'm not kicking Hanukkah. I'm just pointing out what Hanukkah was originally about compared to why people are celebrating it today. And it's two totally different issues. How are you going to celebrate an altar dedication that don't even exist in a temple that don't exist no more and mandated as a commandment of man. And in some cases, people elevate Hanukkah to the same status as tabernacle. Can I tell you something else about Hanukkah? Jews in Israel, many of them don't celebrate the high holy days, but they celebrate the Jewish holidays. Secular Jews don't celebrate the biblical holy days, but they celebrate Purim. They celebrate Hanukkah. Purim is their Halloween. And Hanukkah is their Christmas. And then, you know, you got Christmas. You got those who do both Christmas and Hanukkah. They're just all inclusive. I call them bisexual holiday observers. Ooh, did I just say that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Gee, I guess I'm not. This they said tempting him that they might try to accuse him. Initially, Yeshua ignored them. And this is the thing, brothers and sisters, you got to ignore some people. You got to learn how to shut people down, shut them off. Don't respond. 
I've made a practice because I've had to deal with as a black man, as an African-American or an American African, whatever you want to call me, Negro. I'm even colored. I'm just brown. Right. But, you know, you got these terms that are derogatory like nigger. And if somebody said that to me, it's like they ain't talking to me, so I don't even have to respond to that. When people call you something that's not you, why do you respond? If they call you out of your name, why do you answer to it? You got to learn how to ignore folks. If you allow people to get in your spirit, you have not guarded your heart. It's a sign of your immaturity. When you become mature in Messiah, you begin to guard your heart and people can't just get in your spirit like that. And get this, the people you have to guard your heart against the most are oftentimes in your own house. Like Yeshua says, a man's enemy would be those of his own house. What happens if your spouse or your children reject your faith? That's on them. It really is. That's on them. Are you going to sabotage your walk with the Almighty because the people who are near and dear to you reject it? Two will be in the bed. One will be taken. The other left. I'm almost done. Actually, I'm a little ways away from being done, but, but I'm almost there. This statement was designed to get those attempting to trap him to examine themselves. See, when he wrote in the stone, in the uh, sand, and he said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. I know we've heard a lot of sermons and teachings about this, but here's what I want to I challenge and charge you with. This statement was designed to get those attempting to trap him to examine themselves. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he stood up, spoke to them, stooped down. There's a difference in judging, convicting, and issuing a verdict than judging as a point of observation based on one's actions. If I observe you to be a trickster, that's a judgment. If you've demonstrated that you are full of trickery, then I judge your behavior and tag you as a tricker, a trickster. If you are a liar, and I observe that you consistently lie, then I tag you and I judge you as a liar. Now, I'm not condemning you as a liar. I'm simply judging you by your actions. I can't tell what kind of tree it is unless I judge its fruit. There's a difference between observation judgment and condemnation judgment. And we have been called to know a tree by its fruit, which means I have to judge the actions of people, but not condemn them because of their actions, have hope, pray, and believe that somehow the Holy Spirit is going to intervene in their lives, bring some kind of conviction, just like he did me, just like he did you, and bring you into a place to where you no longer are the person you once were. There's a difference. I point this out. 
In this case, the woman, according to the law, should have been stoned along with the man. But Yeshua's response evoked self-examination of which each person judged themselves, were convicted, and went away. It seems the older ones were quicker at self-examination than the younger ones, or the younger ones looked to the older ones and followed their lead. For here's what John says. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Yeshua was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, regardless to what the woman said, the woman could have come saying, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. Y'all bring me to be stoned, but you let the man go. It's not fair. It's not fair. The fact of the matter is is that she's facing the death penalty, regardless to who's standing there beside her. Yeshua says that if we're going to judge, we want to make sure that our judgment is fair. It's righteous. And oftentimes, people are quick to cast a stone before self-examination. And this is the issue, being quick to cast a stone before self-examination. Here's what Yeshua had to say about that. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how would thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the moat out of thine eye and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Hypocrite. First, cast out the beam out of thine own eye. And then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. As I said, things are not always as they appear. And for this reason, our systems today and Jehovah in his system ordained a process in order to minimize the possibility of convicting the person without due process. We have to adapt this process, brothers and sisters. As I reflect on my life, my wife said and did some things that bothered me. I've said and done some things that bother my wife. You see this. Now, I can take my wife's issues and throw them at her. And what do you think she's going to do? She's going to take my issues and throw them back at me. So what do we have? We have, we stoning one another. If before I do that, I look at my issues. (laughs) I'm going to have a second thought to throw her issue at her because of my own self-examination. If I do that, then I haven't judged with the understanding that the same judgment I render out is the same judgment that is going to be rendered back at me. And here's what it does. It creates tension and hostility between two people that ultimately cause separation. 
There are times when I want to bring up the past, but I know I got a past too. And my past is not righteous. My past is not holy. And though she may not know some of my past, and I may not know some of her past, we both got a past. I'm using my wife because this is probably for us the most sensitive area. Boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, husband, wife. We both got a past. Now, if I'm going to walk in this love that the Almighty gives me to walk in, I can't see her. I shouldn't be looking at her through those lenses. Even when that old man tried to get me to do so. You see, I have found out that my greatest warfare is not with the devil, it's with my own mind. It's my own thinking. It's my own memory. It's my own Rolodex. My own file keeping. Because see, here we are supposed to be casting things away and throwing things away and trying to forget things, but we hold certain things closer to the breast and the things that we hold closer to the breast that we shouldn't be keeps us from holding the things close to the breast that we should be. See, if we're guarding the word in our heart, we ain't guarding the garbage in our heart. <laughs> Say that again. If we're guarding the word in our heart, we ain't guarding the garbage in our heart because his word and that garbage can't hang out in the same space. <laughs> the more I get that word in me, the more he flushes that garbage. He flushes my past. He flushes my memory. And now I got to make sure that when I examine myself, I don't go into the garbage heap. Don't go to the dump. Don't go to that place where it stinketh and bring up stinky stuff because you can't go in the garbage where it stinketh and coming out not stinky. <laughs> and you know, arguments and fights get all ugly and stinky. Yeshua is saying, listen, always examine yourself. Always examine yourself. Always examine yourself. When you examine yourself, you might become more merciful. You just might be. When you examine yourself, you may develop some compassion. <laughs> you might even come to a place of forgiveness. Because Yeshua says, if you're not willing to forgive, how are you going to be forgiven? When you hold on to unforgiveness, you are sealing your own doom. Self-condemnation. Self-condemnation. People who condemn themselves are looking at themselves through their garbage. You don't feel good about you because of stuff you've done. And Father is not looking at you that way if you've been redeemed because he's taking that garbage and says, listen, you're supposed to be a holy place. You're supposed to be a, a holy temple. 
Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we got to get all that stuff cleaned out. You got to get all that garbage out of there. You got to be careful what you allow in your heart. You got to guard your heart with all diligence because out of it flows the issues of life. How you see life, how you see people must be viewed through his word and not from a condemnation, but from a proper judgment. Because once you properly assess and judge, then now you know how to minister. Unless you have no intent of ministering whatsoever anyway. Which means that you haven't been discipled or understand discipleship because father sent Yeshua in the world to save it. Judge not according to the appearance, John says in verse seven, but judge righteous judgment. You can't judge righteous judgment if you're not walking righteous. Verse 10. When Yeshua lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Yeshua said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Was the woman guilty? Did the woman deserve stoning? Was Yeshua shirking the instructions? You have to ask yourself, was he not obeying what was written? I'm going to let you in on something real quick. Three things I want to point out. After self-examination, even the religious could not condemn the woman, even though she was caught in the act. Two, Yeshua did not condemn the woman, even though she had been caught in the act. Three, Yeshua instructed the woman to stop sinning or go and sin no more. First, after self-examination, even the religious could not condemn the woman, even though she was caught in the act. In fact, when Yeshua told them, see, here's what they had to look at. A person can say, well, I've never committed adultery. Okay. Have you violated any commandment? Because he wasn't saying you who is without adultery cast the first stone, but you who are without sin. So you may not have done that sin, but what sin have you done? Put yourself in the woman's shoes. So the religious went away. When we examine ourselves, we may become more merciful. Self-examination has a way of putting us in the shoes of the person we are judging and should cause us to ask ourselves this question. If we were in that same predicament, what would we want done to us? How would we want to be judged? This is what we have to do in every situation, brothers and sisters, if we're going to do righteous judgment. That's not letting people off the hook. You see, it's not my job to convict you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not my job to overlook or ignore because I'm supposed to judge the fruit. The only way I know who I labor among is I look at their fruit. I can't get into a relationship with someone and ignore the fruit 
Because if I ignore the fruit, they're going to come back to haunt me one day. If he's putting his hand on you before you get married, what can you expect when you get married? If they're calling your names and cussing you out and stealing and cheating and getting high and smoking and getting drunk and reveling and all that stuff, what can you expect after the deal is signed? If you got to cheat, who you want to go in business with, and they got a reputation of not being good business people, why would you want to go in business with them? Because ultimately, you're going to become another victim. These are the things that happen when we ignore the fruit and don't properly judge or assess a matter. We find ourselves being victimized, which is nobody's fault but our own. So if I was a victim, can I hold my victimizer captive. Now, if I'm young, there's a difference. Parents are supposed to protect their children. I'm not talking about when it comes down to minors under your care. I'm talking about when you are an adult or when you are of age and you're making decisions on your own. When you start making decisions on your own, and you find yourself being taken advantage of because of decisions you have made on your own, you can't blame anybody for your decision-making. The best thing you could do is own it, learn from it, and go and sin no more. If you keep repeating it, if you keep doing it over and over again, whose fault is that? If you don't want to listen to sound counsel, sound judgment, wise counsel, whose fault is it? If they said, don't do it and you did it anyway, whose fault is it? That doesn't mean that, okay, well, you're getting what you deserve. But in fact, it does mean you're getting what you deserve. It's just not for me to say it. It's for you to come to that conclusion on your own. But unfortunately, people don't want to be reminded of their failures. And the sad thing is, is that they don't remind themselves. They don't remember their failures. If you don't remember your failures, you are bound to repeat them over and over and over and over and over. If it didn't work that time, what makes you think it's going to work this time? Insanity, as they say, is doing the same old thing, expecting different results. Don't be of the criminal minded examine how you got caught so that you could do it again with a few changes, but look at what you did as wrong and then you don't do it again. That's what acknowledgement confessing is all about. And so we need to put ourselves in the situation. This is with our spouse. This is with our siblings. This is with our coworkers, even with our children. My wife reminds me sometimes as I'm dealing with my children, remember, 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 you were young. You made those kinds of mistakes, these kinds of things. And my comeback is that, you know, yeah, I did that, but my parents held me responsible. My parents held me responsible. Yeah, I did those things. Yeah, I disobeyed my parents. But they punished me. They didn't reward my bad behavior. My parents disciplined me. 
So I could look at it. Yeah, I did it and let them off the hook because I did it. But no, I'm not them. I'm now my parent. Because my parent loved me, they disciplined me. They held me accountable. They held me responsible for my actions. And as parents, if we love our children, we have to hold our children responsible. As long as they're in our care. When they move out from our roof, then that's a whole different story. But as long as they're under our roof. See, parents, you may not know this, but according to the law, if you got a minor, if your minor gets in trouble and go to jail, who do you think they're going to call? And you know what? You can't leave them. You got to go get them. And if you don't go get them, you know what they do? They come get you. But when they get 18, they don't call you. <laughs> Second, Yeshua did not condemn the woman, even though she had been caught in the act. And the question is, is why? Why did not Yeshua condemn the woman? Is it because he examined himself? I don't think so. Yeshua stated in chapter three that he was not sent into the world to condemn or bring judgment against the world that will occur at his second coming. Yeshua came to save. And this is what he said for Elohim sent him not into the world to condemn the world. John wrote that, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of Elohim. So where is the condemnation going to come? The condemnation is going to come from within. See, there are people who condemn themselves before they came to Messiah. And even after Messiah is holding themselves hostage to their behavior and activity prior to Messiah. And in some cases, things that they did even after Messiah that they've confessed and asked for forgiveness for, but are still operating in self-condemnation. And we have to let ourselves off the hook. We have to let ourselves go. You can't walk in freedom holding yourself in bondage. And no matter how much conviction you convict yourself, it's not going to make your redemption that much more sweet. He's already, if you've confessed with the heart of confessing your faults, he said he's faithful and just to forgive you and then to cleanse you. Many of us, Accept his forgiveness, but don't accept his cleansing. And we got to accept his cleansing because until you are cleansed, you let go and move on. Today, you need to accept that cleansing. Third, Yeshua instructed the woman to stop sinning or go and sin no more. And the question is, was that possible? Was it possible? And here's the question to you. Would father ask us to do stuff we can't do? Will he ask us to do something that he can't do in us? Now, if you look at sin as this oblivious ideology in the religious world, or you narrow sin down, 
Sin is identified by his word. If a person committed adultery and he said, go and sin no more and identified adultery as sin, if I go and commit adultery again, did I listen? If I continue to do the things that he said has identified as sin, thinking, okay, well, his blood covers me. Well, his blood does until you make a mockery of it. Sin, according to this verse, is one, to be without a share, two, to miss the mark, or be mistaken, four, to miss or wander from the path of uprightness and honor, to do or go wrong, and then five, to wander from the law of Elohim, to violate God's law. And here in John, he writes, he defines sin. Whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So Yeshua was saying to the woman, stop violating Jehovah's law. Stop. The woman would have known what Yeshua meant because it was those who were supposed to be responsible for the law who brought her to him to be judged. And they even quoted the law. Moses said, but Yeshua said to them, you are in keeping the law. How can you do that? When we violate the law or our own moral code, we become convicted and can even condemn ourselves. If you have any knowledge of Jehovah's law or words, when you do things, you will feel within yourself. It's because of these things that we have a tendency to cover up. If what I did was okay, why do I got to lie about it? Why do I have to deny it? Our lying and denial is evidence that what we have done, we may not feel good about it, or it may not have been right, because if it was right, there's no reason to keep it in darkness. People of light walk in the light, not in darkness. All right? And then the last verse says, we already read, then spake Yeshua again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that Followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but should have the light of life. And this is the freedom Father wants us all to walk in. He wants us to experience his freedom so that his joy can be a part of our walk. His joy is our strength. We're going to need that strength. We're going to need that encouragement. And so my prayer to you, my, my appeal to you, my challenge to you is the question that I asked earlier, if you knew he was coming back tonight or tomorrow at 11 a.m., is there anything in your life that you would get right? Is there anything in your life that you would change? Is there anything that you're doing that you would stop doing? Is there anything that you're not doing that you would do? Because, see, these are the kinds of things that we have to continually challenge ourselves of. Because as we begin to walk in that manner, we walk in a constant state of self examination and the goal is for that new man, the best man to come forth. That means I have to shed all that old man stuff. I have to let that stuff go. 
I have to let it trickle off. That stuff that so easily get in my spirit, that stuff that causes me to be upset, that stuff that causes me to argue in my head as if I'm arguing with somebody, that stuff that keeps me from wanting to interact or, or engage or, or be around other people. Shouldn't have to hide from folks. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And if you're in free indeed, then you need to walk in that freedom. Demonstrating your faith, your relationship with the Almighty, manifesting His power, His gift, His strength, His joy in our lives. And you'll see then, <laughs> no weapons formed against you will prosper. You'll walk in your prosperity. You'll walk in your freedom. You're free to hear His voice, to commune with Him, to follow His step because you're not concerned, you're not fearful of man. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.